And welcome to our Jackson home. This week I'm joined by Samuel T. Bryant. He's the head distiller, owner, and the janitor at Samuel T. Bryant Distillery. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you much for having me, Kevin. So Sam, why don't you tell me about uh, yourself? Are you from here? I'm from Jackson. I was born at Jackson General Hospital. Um, been here most of my life. I've been a, a brief stint down in Memphis for college. And um, we actually, my distillery is located on my family farm. It's been my family since 1904. And um, me and my dad actually do most of the work out there as far as doing the distilling. So it's all locally made, homemade products. So I think that qualifies as a century farm, right? It does. We never have gone through the paperwork, though, to get that title officially. And someone already already has that kind of claimed out that way, don't they? Yeah, we have Century Farm Wineries just right down the road from us. There's some great people. Actually, Carl at Century Farm Wineries who taught me how to make wine, which actually turned into the distillery. So. Let's learn more about that in a minute. But so, but you haven't always been a distiller, right? No, I haven't. I worked as an arborist, a tree doctor for about 12 years here in Jackson and um, learned a lot about trees and took care of a lot of trees for people. Um, and actually, our building is actually built out of lumber that I um, got during that period of time. I had my own sawmill. So we could take trees in. Um, we get good trees in. A lot of them have metal in them for meeting residential yards. and We couldn't do anything with them. So we had to come up with a sawmill, and then that's what turned into our retail area. We actually used that lumber for that. Wait, the trees would have metal in them? People would put nails in them, okay. or they have a you know fence running through them yeah. or something. And, of course, you can't sell them to a sawmill if they've got metal in them. Um, and I've got a little portable sawmill that my blades cost about $35 to replace. So if I hit metal, it wasn't that, big, that a big a deal. If a real sawmill hits a uh-huh. piece of metal, it's about $1,500 a blade plus all the downtime. So mm-hmm. they can't take the chance on yeah, it. Yeah, not worth it. Yeah. So you, you don't every day run into someone who's been an arborist. I guess you still are an arborist technically, right? And, I mean, I, I know how to do tree stuff. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so where, do you, did you go to school for arborist, arborism, um, arbory? <laughs> well, my dad actually works at the Department of Agriculture um, and did work, research on nematodes um, on soybeans, okay. which are little pests that get on the roots okay. of soybeans. Nothing real exciting, but I've been around plant stuff my whole life. And I actually went to school at Christian Brothers for chemical engineering and finished up a degree at Lambeth um, in business management and marketing. Gotcha. Um, so I had a, a pretty good background in chemistry f- for that helped with the tree, the arbor side of things yeah. too. And it also helped me with the distilling side of things as yeah, well. Yeah. So you went from the arborist, what you just decided that that was enough of that for you? Well, I had to have a few little surgeries done. And so that career just had to change mm-hmm. and I sold that business back in 2011. They went into financial planning for a little while and just wasn't my thing. Yeah. I worked for a great company, and if anybody needs any financial planning, Edelman Edelman's some very good people to talk mm-hmm. to. They they were absolutely great. Um, but I just decided to go a different direction. Yeah, and I said, kind of it drove you to drinking. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Ironically, uh, most distillers you will find don't drink that much. Yeah. Um, it, I've been through some distillery conventions and. They are not the wild roaring parties you think they would be. Because yeah. uh, by the time you can get a distiller to drink something, as if you know, it's something new and way out of the box that's mm-hmm. really different. Because um, it's kind of like if you work at a restaurant, you know, if you if you you know, if work in an Italian restaurant or something like that, you don't want to eat Italian when you go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so what was it? You know, what was it about uh, opening a distillery that like drew your attention? Um, one, I really enjoy the process of making the products, mm-hmm. and we make a, about 10, 12 different products right now, and um, I enjoy basically figuring out how to actually do it. Um, and, and what I started out doing was I would, I would more or less clone stuff you'd find at the liquor store and be like, mm-hmm. well, I wonder how they do that. And I would yeah. put it together and like, I finally get stuff that 
I would give samples to people and they'd be like, well, I can't tell the difference between this and the bottle we just bought. Yeah. And then after I got good at that, I was like, okay, let's have, figure out how to do it better. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've, 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 I've consistently done. I consistently hear people coming into the distillery and when they come in and try things, they're like, this is better than anything I can get at the liquor store. Like we have a, um, a, a product that's similar to scotch, but we can't call it scotch because it's not made in Scotland, but it's like a scotch and a bourbon had a baby so together. You can only call it scotch if it's made in Scotland. Right. Okay. And then we have tequila, which is not to be fused with tequila, which is yeah. made in Mexico. Um, but we make it here in Tennessee. And it's the only agave-based spirit made in Tennessee that I'm aware of. Yeah. And we, we do a lot of products like that. And it's like the tequila is my favorite product that I make because that's the one I, I drink if I, if I drink anything. And um, I tried to make it more like a traditional mixed tequila. It's a lot spicier. It's got a lot more flavor than a typical tequila, mm-hmm. tequila you would get at a liquor store. Um, but I said it's not legally tequila because it's yeah. made here, um, but we use agave nectar we bring up from Mexico. And I mix about 1% malted barley in with it. So it has a hint of a whiskey taste in the background. Mm-hmm. And we age it on just a little bit of uncharred white oak, which gives it a hint of sweetness and also takes just a little of the bite away. And it just turns out beautiful. So you, wait, you mix it with trees? Is that what you just said? Yes, we mix it with trees. <laughs> um, there's one thing about being an arborist for so long as I, I knew trees real well. Mm-hmm. And it actually helped me come up with some different ways to age products um that some other people possibly haven't thought of maybe they have i don't know um we use it instead of using barrels to age things in which is traditionally how distilleries age things um we use stainless steel tanks and i've got my own sawmill so i cut my own wood staves out of white oak trees typically Um, i use a combination of white oak and post oak and um for just different products that we do and what that one interesting thing you find with that is I can use, like I can use trees from residential yards that I'll get from, mm-hmm. you know, that have already fallen down anyway. Yeah, or just make sure you get the, the metal out so there's not that rusty yeah, flavor. Yeah, uh, yeah. Metal and, and whiskey do not mix. <laughs> I mean, like iron and whiskey. Once you, if you ever get iron into a whiskey at all, it, it's um it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, like th- that's one thing. If you have a lot of iron in your water, like an artesian well or something like that it's just the death of any hmm. alcohol production from that because the iron will actually react with the alcohol and makes it taste pretty horrible. Okay. Um, but when you use the sawmill, you can see where the metal is and because it, it, the metal will actually stain the wood blue. And so you just, if you see that come up, you know, you got metal coming up and either one, we can take a drill and drill it out or we can just push on through it <laughs> and yeah. tear a blade up, but you still save the log. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll fire the wood in a very specific way that actually brings out a lot of the flavors. Mm-hmm. Like in one of the products I have, um, our whiskey light product, um, which we can't call Tennessee whiskey because we don't charcoal filter, we don't age it in new oak barrels like you're supposed to. Who it's comes t- up with all of these rules? People. <laughs> um, that, that's that's I said it, it's just uh, that's what the legislator decided was officially Tennessee whiskeys. It has to be run through charcoal than Asian new oak barrels. And um, with my process, I get a very good finished product that comes out of it. Yeah. It uses a lot less trees and I'm using trees that don't have, you know, don't come from the woods. They're coming from somebody's yard, but they've fallen over or, uh-huh. you know, they, they've, they've come down or had to come down because of some reason they were a danger to a house or something. So are you saying that if someone has a tree down in their yard, they can call you and it be, can be involved in... No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be, you know, something that just works out, you know, yeah. conveniently. It's not, I don't go around picking up trees or, or mm-hmm. doing tree work anymore. Um, what we do is we just, um, 
every now and then I'll have somebody, one of my friends who's in the tree business will be like, Hey, we're taking down a big white oak. We got to yeah. get rid of it. And we had to cut it up into you know short pieces that no sawmill is going to buy and, or it'll be hit by lightning or something like that. So it's not worth anything for yeah. lumber at that point in time. And I'll be, Hey, just you know, bring it out here and we'll chew it up and mm-hmm. turn it into our, our, turn it into whiskey at yeah. the end of the day. That's <laughs> and, awesome. and I've actually got in my sawmill right now, I've got a 170 year old white oak tree that was hit by lightning. So I will have whiskey, I have white lightning aged with real lightning, <laughs> so to speak. and I don't know how it's going to turn out. Because um, one thing I've discovered, um, you talk to a lot of people who do barbecuing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one thing that I've kind of is an advantage of um, the doing it the way I do it with chip, wood chips. But people who barbecue, they always want the wood just to not be rotten, but just have a little bit of age on it, where it's mm-hmm. had time to patina and, and sort of the environment kind of softens it up a little bit. Yeah. Because it, it puts out more flavor when you smoke things with it. Well, the same thing is true with aging products with it, too. But you can't do that with a barrel because you do that with a, the wood you use for a barrel. The barrel would come apart yeah, or would leak. Um, in our case, we can we can let that wood get a little age on it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like aging meat, so to speak. Yeah. Um, same basic. We let it cure a little bit. And it gives us a little more bold, a little more unique flavor that comes through. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that's one thing that process we use actually lets us do is not only lose less trees but it actually um lets us get some different flavors out of things yeah so are those chips good for one go around or? usually one go around yeah. um, is all i use them for um and then then we um i've got some unique things i do in the firing process mm-hmm. that i don't think anybody else has thought of but, yeah. and after they get used one time they get turned into uh fire <laughs> firewood so they're they're okay. they're gone a lot of people are like why don't you sell them for barbecue chips yeah, and i was, was like but we don't because it's it's the process is pretty unique and it's one of those things that i, I came up with something that i don't think anybody else think anybody else has thought of mm-hmm. and so i just kind of keep it to myself and yeah. there's nothing going out the back door where anybody else could figure it out <laughs> unless you start your own barbecue pit out yeah there, that's which... true too that, that that might make sense one day yeah but it's a whole other set of regulations though yeah we you gotta... might not be able to call it tennessee barbecue though because whatever reason <laughs> yeah i might not be able to who knows so so let's talk so what is the so walk me through the process because you um make a lot of different products but your main product there our main product we make um the one we sell the most of as far as bottles is our tennessee hills which is like a, a kind of like a whiskey um so we can't call it tennessee whiskey because of the law so it, we labeled yeah. as a dark tennessee shine mm-hmm. um and it's a combination of corn, barley. But there's no rules on shine. No rules on shine at all. Well, ten- Tennessee moonshine has to be made in Tennessee. Okay. Um, that, that, there is that rule. Um, but there is no rule um, as far as what moonshine actually is. Gotcha. Moonshine can literally be made from anything. There hasn't been a, a, a big enough lobbying group to, right. to name it. That could be your thing. Yeah. You could you could define what shine is. I don't want to define what shine <laughs> is. I just like to... I make, I make my product. Other people make their product. Mm-hmm. Try them, see which one you like. Absolutely. I mean, I don't. I'm not interested in trying to make any legal hoops to jump through for anybody. Yeah. So, do you do you grow the grain on the farm? Or? Well, we don't grow it directly. We have farmers that farm mm-hmm. uh, our family farm, and we buy it back from them, or we buy it back from one of the local farmers around mm-hmm. us. So we try to we try to use as much local stuff as we can. Like we yeah. make blueberry moonshine, and we use the um, blueberries from the Dixon Blueberry Farm in Mercer, Tennessee, for that. We make blackberry moonshine, and we use the um, blackberries from the Cowan uh, Blackberry Farm in Bradford, Tennessee, for that. Cool. And um, so we try to just keep everything as local as we can. Some things we just can't get here, like agave nectar, not going to grow in. <laughs> you know, it's going to have to be in Mexico, so yeah. we, we have to bring that in. 
Or they couldn't call it agave. Right. Well, they... they, they <laughs> That's a joke. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, agave is kind of a really interesting plant when you start looking at it because it's actually a, a variety of asparagus. It's huh. in the same family as asparagus family. It's not... Everybody thinks it's a yucca plant, but it's actually not. Um, but it takes about seven years for an agave plant to reach oh, maturity. Wow. And in that seven years, it can't get below about 30 or anywhere from 37 to 38 degrees Fahrenheit till the plant dies. So okay. you have to have a rather warm yeah. location for it to live in. Yeah. Now, there are some cold hardy varieties that can take lower temperatures, but they don't produce the kind of sugar you need for the, um, you know, to make tequila, tequila with. And, um, so it, it, it's a it's an interesting process, and so we're the only ones in Tennessee doing that yeah. that I'm aware of. Well, probably because it's hard to get hands on, I imagine. It's expensive. It's it's one of the most expensive commercial sugars mm-hmm. on the market. As you know, you go to Walmart and buy a little jar of it, and it's almost six bucks for like twenty and ounces of it. Right? Yeah. And well, so so you you have your someone on your family farm that's that's growing. You bring this, walk us through the process. What happens for that Tennessee shine to come to existence? Well, Tennessee shine, what we do is we take um, corn, barley, rye, and um, we grind them all up with our grain mill. With our, our moonshine, our grains aren't cooked. And that's usually the distinction between a moonshine and a whiskey is the grains aren't cooked for a moonshine. Mm-hmm. But they're not necessarily a distinction, but that's typically what it is. Um, we'll grind up the corn, barley, and rye, put those in a big trough, and then um, we'll take 500 pounds of sugar and put in a big mixing tank. It's a lot of sugar. It now, is. how does one get, is it just come in giant bags? Just 50 pound bags. Okay. And you gotcha. take 10 of those and dump them in I so have slowly. In my mind, like a dump truck of sugar dumping in your yeah. backyard. You know, it just comes in on big pallets, you know, yeah. stacked up. And um, you just take it. And I'm, I'm sure they sell it by the dump truck load, you know, in places. Maybe uh, one day. Yeah, maybe one day. I mean, you can buy whole shipping containers of it, mm-hmm. but they're rather expensive <laughs> when you go buy 40,000 pounds of sugar at a time. And you got to make sure it keeps too and doesn't yeah. get moisture in it and all that kind of stuff. So what we do is we um, we take the 500 pounds of sugar and turn it into a sugar syrup. We got a big mixing tank mm-hmm. that actually just it's like a big you know blender more or less, and it, it turns that sugar by agitating it into a sugar syrup with about 160 gallons of water. We put that 160 gallons of sugar syrup in a 300 gallon tote with the grain, fill it the rest of the way up with water. We add our yeast in, and the yeast eat the sugar, and that's what actually fuels the whole moonshine process. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason, like, you can take grain, like corn, say you got a, a, a 100 pounds of corn, you can cook that corn and make, like, a porridge out of it or, like, you know, a soup out of it. And then mm-hmm. you can add malted barley to it or add malted, a lot of malted corn. Barley carries a lot more amylase in it, which is the compound that actually breaks starch down into sugar okay. than, like, malted corn with And malted just means that the plant has, uh, the seed has been germinated. And when it starts germinating, it produces amylase, which starts turning the starch that's stored in the seed into sugars. Okay. And barley produces a whole lot of amylase. And so one pound of barley may be enough to actually break down the, the starch the sugar content in 10 pounds of corn, oh. where it might take four pounds of malted corn to do the same thing. And finding that ratio is part of the mastering yeah. of the distillery. Right? right. And so on the moonshine, we don't use malted. We'll use malted barley in there, but that's just to give us the flavor we're looking for. It's not actually the barley, the starch in the barley isn't usually much of it's not converted into the actual finished product. Most of our alcohol is coming from the sugar we put in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got just different products have different processes. Yeah. Like, like our tequila takes about three months for it to ferment. I make it like a fine wine yeah. and I learned how to make wine before I learned how to do still anything. Yeah. So you said that Carl and, uh, Carl had 
uh, O'Kane. O'Kane has yeah. shown you how to do wine? He showed me how to do wine. Of course, he has the winery down the road from us. And um, But because I learned how to make wine first, I kind of... We have a few more steps in our distillation process mm-hmm. than most places. We actually... Um, go ahead and get all the corn solids and get all the yeast out um, before we actually put it through still or get 99% of it out. There's always going to be some little residual bit amount left in there. Um, but when we get those the grain solids out and get the yeast out, what it ends up doing is when we distill it, it takes a lot of the bitterness away from it. Even like we do the same process with our whiskeys um, too. Um, but what it does is it strips the, um, the uh, all those impurities out basically when you boil yeast um, they put off all flavor compounds and a lot of the aging process of aging whiskey is actually sitting around waiting for those compounds to break down where if you get them out in the first place you save yourself a year off of aging time you know just like that yeah so how long does yours take then um my cycle for turning around to going from raw ingredients on the floor mm-hmm. to moonshine coming off of the steel is probably about 20 20 to 24 days, depending on the temperature. As opposed to your tea and kilo, which is like three, three months. Three months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the longest process that you, is the tea and kilo? The tea and kilo is the longest fermentation process. Uh-huh. And then the um, aging process on like our, our Tennessee Hills is about two years is what we let sell on the wood chips before. Wow. So you got to sit back and let it, let it do its thing for a while. Yeah. Which is hard to plan for, I would think. It is, but you know... It, it's one of those things you just put it back in a tote and you forget about it until mm-hmm. you need it. And um, it just sits back there and does its thing. And you have a couple totes. You got one you're, you're pulling off of and another one that's, that's aging. And, and that's that's how you do it. Yeah. So what which product is you said the tea and keel is the one you prefer. That's my favorite. Is that your is that the one you're most proudest of, or you just enjoy that one the most? That's the one I'm proudest of. I mean, that's the one that I have a lot of people come in, and they may not buy a bottle that day because it is kind of pricey because it is expensive to produce and it has yeah. a lot of time in it. But that's like when I get people coming in all the time. It's like that's what I want for Christmas. That one right there, and you know, telling all their family to make sure that they yeah. that's where they got in their their Christmas stocking come you know September or December twenty fifth, um, and then but like. As far as just people enjoying our products, like I've had, um, we did a thing for the Memphis Opera, um, and they tried our Scotch type or like product. And um, but if the regulators are listening, it's yeah, not Scotch, right? Right. It, that's why I said Scotch type product. <laughs> um, and uh, they were um, there was a bunch of people there from Scotland and Ireland, and there was a big group of them that came over the table at one time. They started trying, it and they're like. Well, it's not quite as good as such and such, and these were names I hadn't heard of because these people were from yeah. place. And I started looking up on my phone what these, you know, what they're comparing to, and I was like, they're like, well, it's second to this or second to that, and I'm like, well, I was like, that's a hundred eighty dollar bottle. I will take second to that for yeah. a first try. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, and I actually had some of them actually. Um, they needed some bottles for a party or something. They said, I can't ship anything, and, and so really? yeah, that that really hurts our business badly. Is that uh, whose rule is that? Um, that is state law. Uh, and so as far as I know, it's just state, but I, I can't ship anything in Tennessee or outside of Tennessee as far as me, you know, calling FedEx, Hey, come pick this up and take mm-hmm. it there. Um, but they, um, sent it, they was like, well, we can't make it down there. What can we do? I was like, well, you can send an Uber driver down if he's over 21 and I know you're over 21, you know, <laughs> you know, we were, yeah. and these people were like under 60. So, I mean, I, yeah. I knew who I was dealing with. Um, but I mean, it was a pretty big compliment to have him send him down to they did send the Uber yeah, driver. They, all the way from Memphis down Ooh. here to, to, to buy three bottles for the party. They thought very highly of yeah. your product. And it's just, still, you know, every time 
you know, they, they're kind of all knew each other and as a group, if one of them comes through, they'll stop by and buy two or three bottles and take it back with them to Memphis. And, um, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's fun when I get reactions like that Mm -hmm. because you know, people who are connoisseurs and they try our stuff and they're like, wow, that's amazingly good. And I've had some people coming in, you know, stop by like the distillery and they've been through a lot of distilleries. And I had one couple come in that, um, they, they were, um, tra- they just bought a place out in Gatlinburg and they were traveling from, I believe, Texas out to Gatlinburg and they stopped by and, and they ended up buying like 10 bottles of stuff. Uh, but they stopped by thinking, oh, this is just going to be a little distillery. It's not going to be that good, but we'll buy a Mercy bottle just because we stopped by and got yeah. the tour. And they stayed for like two hours talking, having a great time and swapping stories and everything else. And uh, they were like, we just can't believe the quality of this stuff mm-hmm. and this little place we just didn't expect it. Yeah. And um, th- that makes me feel really good. Mm-hmm. And that's what we kind of built our, our business off of is just taking care of the clients that come in the door and making sure that they, they leave happy. Mm-hmm. And my name's on every bottle, so I stand yeah. behind a product. You know, it's like we got to make sure that they're happy with their purchase for sure. Have you had the opportunity to enter any contests or anything? I have not yet. And most of the, the contests out there, you basically have to pay to play. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, um, you know, pay them X. X number of dollars per entry. And so it, it gets kind of cost prohibitive and I haven't gotten to the point yet that I can do yeah. that. And you know, my, my the way I see it is my, my taste contest is every customer that comes in the door. Mm-hmm. I've got about 10 products on, right on the, on the, on the shelf right now. And, um, my goal is to make sure I got something that somebody's going to want to leave with at least one of them. Mm-hmm. And usually I, I give them a hard choice to make between several of them. So that's, yeah. Um, but I haven't had too much trouble. Most of the people that come in when they try it, they're like, this is really good stuff. We're going to take some home with us. Yeah. So, so when they come in there, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you haven't been to the, the distillery yet, the building's fantastic. If we went like me and my dad cut all the lumber and then I was something on my sawmill over the years. And, um, then, uh, one of my good friends did all the woodwork in there and just did a fantastic job with it. Uh, it's one of those places I had the, um, it was one of the guys from, Disneyland. He was one of the engineers that actually built Epcot Center. Came through, wow. and him and his wife had an RV, and that's what the thing was. They just toured the country, and he's like, "I've seen one other building like this in this place in Colorado that was like some real famous restaurant that everybody went yeah. to that had this much detail in it as far as the woodwork goes." And he's that's it. And this guy was like, when they built Epcot Center, he actually um, they had they found all these old woodworkers that actually knew how to do the old you know old school woodworking stuff like from over in europe to do i guess the parts of the theme park and he said we actually had to go and find um special tools for them out in these abandoned you know mills and abandoned woodworking shops and all this stuff and actually convert some of the stuff over from steam power and, <laughs> and even some of it was over from like um water wheel power stuff um because they, they were like when they signed their contract that it was woodwork they're like we're going to need these tools this is what we got to have yeah go find them and um, they did but all the guys were like 70 80 years old um, because there wasn't anybody around young that still knew how to do a lot of that Mm -hmm. stuff and so it it was a big compliment coming from him because he really knew his stuff (laughs) so you and your dad built the whole kit and caboodle out there well we cut all the lumber in it and um, so we've had you know we had you know electricians and plumbers and stuff like that too but um we hired all them to do other thing and the bar Mm -hmm. is one giant tree it's just one really big tree the same tree the bar is made of is the same tree the back walls actually came out of Mm -hmm. and um, it was the the base the big end on that tree is about 54 inches in that or 54 inches across and the small ends about 
28 or 30 inches across. It's about 17 foot long, and it weighed about 2,500 pounds coming off the sawmill. And it was it was a massive piece of wood, but it really it makes the room work. Oh, it's it's very beautiful. So what? And you said so. Your father works out there with you. Mm-hmm. So what's it like working with your dad every day? Oh, so I couldn't do it without him. I mean, he, he's even I had the tree company he helped out every day with that. He's just he he always he he moved, he's said in his late seventies now he still gets out and bush hogs eight hours a day and you know can just get out and do and he's never stopped doing and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I think he can still do so much. Um, he's just um, he's great. I said I, I could absolutely couldn't do it without him. Mm-hmm. Well, what what's coming up for uh, Sam Bryan, except for maybe a barbecue restaurant? Well, maybe one <laughs> of these days. Um, what we we're planning, we got about another seven or eight products we want to come out and market mm-hmm. with. I've already got approval for them. I just have to get some labels and do some stuff like that. And that's just just time and materials, you know, kind of thing. So we're uh, we're making our way that direction. And um, once we get um, new products out we're just really trying to grow our 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 business model we're going to eventually start distributing to the liquor stores and doing that and it's just there's a lot of infrastructure that has to be in place before we do that and one thing that i've been terribly like not terribly but very concerned about was our um quality control and making sure that the product's the same yeah. when it goes out the door and that's very hard to do because like there's so many little things you just don't even think of that would make a difference when you're making liquor that change things like when you make a a chocolate chip cookie and when it comes out of the oven an hour later it's pretty much what it's going to be until it goes bad Mm -hmm. with whiskey or moonshine or anything like that it can change dramatically within a month really and i guess you probably is it something that you won't be able to anticipate or well i can now but had i just um you know put stuff on the shelf you know immediately and i've seen a lot of distilleries like they open up and they're on the shelf three weeks later Mm -hmm. with product um, which does get your cash flow going, but it takes time to learn the things that you need to know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I still learn more every day. You know, it, it's one of those things I learned that if you mix the product together, at, you know, when it's our, our shop isn't temperature controlled, so we're at the mercy of the environment. If it's 40 degrees out there and I mix uh, the stuff, the, the high proof alcohol out of the tanks together with water on a four degree day versus doing that same thing on a nine degree day, the end product will be very different. Um, because what happens when you have those those higher temperatures, more of these little light ester type um, alcohol molecules get driven out of the solution. So it actually makes it a little smoother if it's mixed at higher temperatures versus lower temperatures. Mm. But it's not one of those things you're going to find in a book somewhere. Yeah. You know, it's just you got to do it and, and learn from experience. So uh, when can we exp- – and then I guess a lot of events probably coming up at the facility. Yeah, we have uh, – we rent out rent the, the – space out there out for class reunions and wedding receptions and a lot of birthday parties and as do a lot of class reunions that seems to be our main niche we've gotten into yeah it's a good size because mm-hmm. um, how many people can you hold out there um, we can hold a anywhere from 100 to 120 if you want to do a seated dinner mm-hmm. um we can hold more than that if it's like you know standing room kind of thing yeah um but just it depends on what kind of event you want to have like yeah so and um so right now, the only place to get it is to come to the shop. Yep, that's the only place and, to get it. And what's the address? Thirteen thirty one Lower Brownsville Road. We're off exit seventy four on I forty, just off, just outside of Jackson. We're about two miles mm-hmm. um, west of Jackson, Tennessee. We won't hold that against you. Yeah, but but and then and what's the best way to keep up with? Um, we have a Facebook page. That's probably the best way to keep up with us. We also have a website that'll have our events on there and come in. We have music on Friday nights a lot of times too. So. 
come out some night for that. We always have a good time. Well, Sam, thank you so for being so dedicated to your craft and for uh, choosing to uh, make Jackson home and help him make it a better place. All right. Thank you much. Today's podcast was hosted by Kevin Adelsberger. Our intro music was performed by Aaron Harden. It was recorded live at The Co. To find out more about The Co., visit their website at www.attheco.com. To find out more about our Jackson home and read more about how amazing Jackson is, visit ourjacksonhome.com. Thank you.